This is Christine Maxfield, and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. It is my absolute honor to bring you my next guest speaker today. Alison Wright is an award-winning photographer. In fact, I'm sure you've seen her work grace the pages of National Geographic for decades now. And she's also a very talented travel writer. She has a new book out that documents the beautiful nomadic and tribal people around the world called Face to Face, Portraits of the Human Spirit. But we're going to be speaking mainly about her tragic accident that nearly left her dead on the side of a road in Laos. Please listen to her dramatic story, because I know it's a very hard one for her to tell. Allison, I am so excited to be sitting down with you and actually have you in the same town as me right now, because I know that you're on the road a ton doing such amazing work. You are an award-winning photojournalist. You have nine books. Your work is represented by National Geographic and Corbis. You are the recipient of the Dorothy Lang Award in Documentary Photography for your work with child labor in Asia. You're also the two-time winner of the Lowell Thomas Travel Journalism Award. It's just, your resume goes on and on. It's so incredible. How did you even get into travel and your photography and then travel writing? What brought you to this journey? Probably when I was very young. My parents are from Europe. My father's from Belgium and my mom's from England. Hmm. And she was a flight attendant for Pan Am back in the days when travel was incredibly glamorous and exciting. And we would dress up to take a trip. And I traveled extensively with them because we were back and forth. They really thought it out for me to be born in America so I could keep a foothold in each continent and Mm. develop my love of travel. And apparently it worked. Yeah. And so we were back and forth quite a bit. I got my first little Kodak Instamatic camera when I was 10. And I was a shy little kid, and it really brought me out of my shell. I love taking photos with it. And I've actually started keeping a journal when I was 10 every day since. And so I have just felt this need to document everything. Yeah. Then when I got in high school, I had this incredible English teacher. He saw how much I loved taking pictures, and I was on the high school yearbook in the school newspaper, mm-hmm. and he taught me how to use my first SLR camera, and he was the one that first introduced me to the word photojournalist and said, you know, you could actually make a living at doing this, huh. and it had a huge impact on me. I knew at 15 years old that's what I wanted to do with my life, and I never wavered. I just thought it sounded like the coolest job in the world to go around the world taking photos. And so I went and I studied photojournalism, and then I saved my money to travel. I was really drawn to Tibet and India. I was really drawn to the spiritualism of Asia, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. I think we're all drawn to certain places. That was my thing. That's all I could talk about. I wanted to go over to Asia. So I saved my money through college, and when the time came, my father said, India is so far, it's so dangerous, why don't you backpack through Europe instead, which sounded incredibly pedestrian to yeah. me, but, <laughs> but I did it you know, to appease him, and what I really did is I got to Spain, and I sent postcards from Spain saying how much I love the beaches of Spain, and And then what I really did is I went over to North Africa. And that (laughs) was life-changing for me because it was my first glimpses of poverty and refugees and children in need. And it was really defining for me. I knew that that's what I wanted to document and photograph in my life. And Mm. then I went over to Greece and I had someone mail postcards from Greece for me saying how much I love the 
beaches of Greece. And <laughs> what I really did is I went over to the Middle East and I hitchhiked all over the Middle East and I lived with Bedouins in the Sinai and yeah. I went around Egypt. I worked on a kibbutz in Israel and then they bombed the American embassy in Beirut and I put on army fatigues and hitchhiked into Beirut and got in all kinds of trouble because I got caught and held in an army military camp. But I was 21. I was fearless. And I was very drawn to this crazy idea of living in the outback of Australia. So I went to Australia and managed to finagle my way onto working on this cattle property and really learning how to ride with the cowboys. And I ended up being there for a couple of years. And so now I've been three years on the road. I came back to the States and visiting my mom in San Diego. And I went to go visit a newspaper and just ask the editor, you know, what do you think? Do you think I have any possibility of getting a job doing this? And to my surprise, she hired me on the spot. And I wasn't even living in San Diego, but I ended up taking this job. And it was a great opportunity, you know, really cutting my teeth on a newspaper back mm -hmm. in the day when there were newspapers, right. because I was in the dark room every day, and I had my work in the paper every day. And what I really loved about living there was having this third world country in my backyard. Mm -hmm. And I was doing a lot of border stories. I was doing a lot of work, even my own work, going and photographing orphanages in Mexico, hmm. because I was so drawn to the situation of children there. One day I was in the back of the newspaper. I was flipping through this magazine. I saw these pictures of these beautiful doe-eyed children from India in a magazine. And I think I was like 24 25 years old, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm so old. I'm going to die on this newspaper. And, yeah. <laughs> I'm so old. <laughs> yeah. But it really felt like I'd lived, you know, this lifetime already, and I thought, oh, God, I'm going to be here forever. And so I called the photographer, and I said, I just like love your work. And he said, well, if you're ever in New York, come by and show me your portfolio. So I bought a plane ticket and came out to New York the following week and showed him the work I've been doing on children in Mexico, and he said, this is great. Do you want to go shoot an assignment in Nepal? Wow. Which is exactly what I want to do with my life. And so I paused three seconds for dignity and yeah. said yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I decided mm -hmm. to just take a chance and I quit my job and mm -hmm. see where the chips would fall. And I got to Nepal and loved it. I felt like I'd come home. Mm -hmm. So I was there for a three-week assignment and I didn't leave for more than four years. Yeah. I loved living there. You know, the UN created a job for me photographing for the Convention for the Rights of the Child. Hmm. It felt like really important work. It was work that I loved. I trekked all over Nepal to the remotest of locations, photographing all aspects of children. You know, their rights to religion and health and welfare and well-being. And that's what I got the Dorothea Lang Award in documentary photography for. So I felt hmm. quite proud of that. But also the fact that we were able to see some change. You know, that was... The most important, you know, then I started working for all the aid organizations, Save mm. the Children, USAID, did a lot of humanitarian work. And every morning before I open my eyes, I think, wow, this is exactly where I want to be, exactly what I want to be doing. Yeah. Again, because I was so drawn to Tibet, I was really surprised to find that there were 120,000 Tibetan refugees living in India and Nepal. Yeah. And that more of the culture was actually outside of it than in it. So I started, again, taking on this personal project of really documenting the Tibetan culture in exile. And this is way before anybody else was doing it. I created a huge body of work. I went to all 57 settlements. Mm -hmm. I worked with translators. I had hundreds of interviews. I went to the remotest areas. And then I started going into Tibet. 
That was really interesting. I mean, this is back when Lhasa still had dirt roads Mm -hmm. and in the early 80s or mid-80s, mid-80s, I should say. It was so interesting that the Dalai Lama actually contacted me and wanted to meet me because nobody had been doing such an extensive look at all of the cultures. And he was very interested in what was happening with the young people, Mm -hmm. young people that were in transition, you know, that didn't have passports and they didn't want to do agriculture like their parents. So they were trying to discover what to do with their lives. And Mm -hmm. they didn't really know who they were. They were Tibetan, but they'd never really seen their homeland. And so I go and I meet the Dalai Lama because at the time, nobody really knew who he was. So, you know, he was very accessible and I ended up having this whole day with him and he gave me a Tibetan name and he presented me with all these gifts and we talked really extensively. And I had just adopted this Tibetan girl, not to bring home, but to help support. And She was in Dharamsala, so I ended up, Mm -hmm. you know, I was there for six weeks, so I got to spend quite a bit of time with the Dalai Lama. I was Hmm. back and forth with him, and so I had a a very nice relationship with him, which grew every time I would go back. And he'd say, oh, you know, you're back, you again, (laughs) come with me to go consecrate this Buddha statue. And, you know, so I would travel with him, and then I really got to photograph him, and now Mm -hmm. I've done over 40 book covers of him, and in fact, I did a whole book on him, A Simple Monk. And, mm-hmm. But I got very ill while I was in Nepal. I got malaria, typhoid, hepatitis. I mean, I got really? slammed with everything. And huh. um, yeah, very, very sick because I was actually living with the people. And Even, did you have all the vaccines for all of those? Oh, I got and, all the shots and I got and all the diseases. Do, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So okay. for whatever reason. And Then I got some weird disease. I was like a case study for this strange disease that I just couldn't get better from. And so I ended up in the Tropical Disease Hospital in London for four months. Mm -hmm. And this doctor said, well, there was a team of doctors, but they said, you can't go back to Asia for at least a year. Well, I didn't want to waste any time. And I also didn't want to go back to the States without health insurance. So Mm -hmm. I wrote to UC Berkeley and told them I wanted to do my master's degree in visual anthropology, studying culture through photography and film. Mm -hmm. And they wrote back and said, well, we don't really know what that is, but we take one special project person a year, and so you're in. And so I (laughs) went back to grad school because I figured kill two birds with one stone, get a grad degree and get health insurance and get well. And I did all three in a year, and so that worked out quite well. But I really, you know, made that degree work for me in that I was able to put all the Tibet work together. It was based on the Tibetan diaspora and Mm -hmm. interviews with photos. So we had a big exhibit that we opened in San Francisco at the Phoebe Hearst Museum. And that became the basis of my first book, The Spirit of Tibet. I did everything in a year. So I was able to get back out on the road soon, which was great, and got hired by this company, Shaman Pharmaceuticals, to go down in the Amazon rainforest for three months to photograph medicinal healers with the Matses and Mayaruna tribe, which was really quite amazing because we put like 2,000 miles on the Amazon River and very, very remote areas. And so I ended up getting this crazy flesh-eating disease there. So that was quite interesting. And then... um, (laughs) You have so many (laughs) books that you need to write about all this. These adventures. Wow. Yeah. That was trying. And then I came back and I kept my place in Nepal. So I was back and forth between San Francisco and Nepal and... Hmm. Oh, this is this is incredible. I, the listeners can't see me with my like jaw cape. Like it's just, I'm picking it off the floor. So let's talk about. Well, first, let me ask you: Is it hard for you to talk about your accident in Laos? 
It is sometimes. I don't think that people realize how hard it is because it's it's actually a pretty traumatic story, and I don't yeah. mind speaking about it. You know, I'm the one that sometimes brings it up. It's just that it's hard when people just bring it up, like at a cocktail party, or yeah. just you know wheel it out, like oh, tell them your accident story. It's not something that I go into lightly. I mean, it was a seriously, incredibly traumatic situation. And it's really interesting because sometimes it just really comes up. You see other trauma, mm -hmm. which I work with a lot. And yet I feel like it's really changed me in the way that has brought a whole new empathy to my work. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I really look at the positive with it. But mm -hmm. I've told the story so many times now. I mean, I get up, you know, when I present or talk about my work, I I bring the story into it because I think it's really important to talk about on so many levels, especially with other travelers. Yeah. Because there's so many elements, you know, lessons learned. Absolutely. Through a situation like that. But how long ago was this? The accident was January 2nd in the year 2000. I was doing all these books. I was working with all the major magazines and my life was really where I wanted it to be. And I was traveling all over the world. I was working on this new book, Faces of Hope, on children around the world. And I was in Laos. I was there for the millennium, for New Year's Eve. And I was going to leave on January 1st, but I, was, I stayed to photograph the monks collecting alms in the early morning light there. And mm -hmm. it's such a beautiful scene that I missed my bus that I was going to take, and I ended up jumping on this other bus. And it was just, I don't know, one of those situations that we've, all been on, on was travelers on this really windy road and you're thinking oh wow you know this was such a near miss because yep. you're constantly missing vehicles mm -hmm. and one thing i did notice that they don't honk their horns like they do in india you know they're constantly right. bleeding these horns and yeah and they don't in laos and this was a very precipitous windy road and I was actually reading my lonely planet book and i was already deciding you know where i was going to stay and anticipating that I was going to get there just in time for the late afternoon light and that I was going to shoot. And I literally, I looked up and I saw this huge logging truck coming at us. And it was one of those, wow, that was really close. And right then, as we turned, the bus slammed right into where I was sitting. You know, I never forget that feeling of it just completely took my breath away. I mean, it just was a full-on frontal slam. And I was at the point of impact. And it just sheared our whole bus right in half. I hit my head so hard that my first thought was, am I dead? Hmm. And then my second thought was to grab my film. I was trying to lift up my backpack huh. with my film. And then I guess I just kind of blacked out because I remember everybody screaming, the bus is on fire, the bus is on fire. And I was traveling by myself, but I couldn't move. I was pinned in these seats. And... When I wrote my book, I seem to remember like somehow getting off this bus, but it's interesting. I only just found out recently how I got off the bus because some guy read my book and he Googled me and then he Skyped me this whole interesting array of media that brought us together. But he called me and he said, do you know how you got off that bus? He's an English guy now living in France. And I said, no. And he said, I'm the one that got you off the bus with another American guy. And you were pinned in the bus, and the bus was on fire, and we were screaming at you because you were unconscious. And it was so strange because as he was saying that, it came back to me huh. that that's how I was hearing it. Anyway, he yanked me off this bus, 
the two of them, and he said, I nearly lost my arm because my arm was so pinned, but they were just so intent on getting me off the bus. And and my arm was literally is just so wrecked. It was dangling off. But oh, when nice. I came to, I was lying by the side of the road, and I knew I'd broken my back because I couldn't move. I just couldn't move at all. And some guy was telling me to get out of the road, and I said, I can't move. My back is broken. And he threw some aspirin on me or something and I couldn't move my arms and and then I kept asking somebody to go back on the bus and get my film because I thought you know if I'm going to survive this I want my film and if I don't survive this I wanted my identification I had just taken my ID off nothing on me so anyway these thoughts were going through my mind as I was laying there and and I just kept hearing, you know, people screaming, this woman's bleeding to death, she's bleeding to death. And I really was like hoping that someone would help this woman and yeah. pray that she was okay. <laughs> yeah. And then I like lifted my arm to look at my watch. And then yeah. I realized that my arm was just dangling off and that the woman that they were talking about was me. And then I thought, wow, don't go there. Don't go into shock. Right. Do not go into shock because you will never come out of this alive. For somebody that really, I personally, I faint whenever I see blood. That took a lot of mental dynamic. You know, I have a lot of background from my years of living in Asia, of spending time in meditation retreats and monasteries. And, you know, I really believe without that skill, without that tool, that I would never have survived a situation like that because Mm -hmm. it was just, it was such a conscious decision to stay alive and to breathe, you know, Mm -hmm. to just breathe. That's all I could concentrate on was being so in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that's so much about what laying on that meditation cushion is about, is sitting and being so aware. And I'll tell you, there's nothing that brings an awareness, like thinking that each breath is going to be your last. Mm -hmm. I was so aware. And just trusting, trusting that somehow I was going to get out of this situation and either alive or not. But these people brought me to their village, these local people. And it took a while, you know, it was a good hour. It was an hour long journey. That's how remote we were on this jungle road. Nobody would stop and give us a ride. And I was definitely one of the most injured. They were covering bodies with sheets. People around me were killed. I believe one of the drivers was killed. Mm. They got me to this little village, and there was nothing there. And this guy brought me in a storage shed. And this young man just proceeded to sew up my arm with just a needle and thread and picking out huge, huge shards of metal and glass and using string and staples. I'm grabbing him by the shirt collar, you know. We're in the golden triangle. Give me some of that opium you're all smoking up here, you know. And (laughs) he didn't understand what I was saying. But they were very kind and intent on keeping me alive. And then what really struck me is that these people were just, these local people were just so intent on not leaving me to just sit with me. And and so I wrote a note to my family after 10 hours. It was really clear I was not going to get out of the situation alive. Now that night had fallen, they said, you're going to have to wait until morning. And I knew I was not going to live until morning because I had collapsed lungs and I couldn't get a breath and I just really needed oxygen. And I knew I was in worse shape than I appeared. And so I wrote a note to my family and I told them how I died and where I died because it was important for me to let them know that I didn't die alone. I didn't die in fear. And I let go, you know, and that was a really amazing thing. I really let go of fear and Mm -hmm. clinging to life. And there was something incredibly freeing about that, that I was okay to die alone on this jungle road in Laos. And that was something I never knew about myself, that mm-hmm. I would be okay with that. 
And yet it's interesting, it just wasn't my time. This British aid worker found me, Alan Guy, with his wife, Van, his Loatian wife, and they put me in the back of a pickup truck on the most potholed road you can ever imagine. But he drove me eight hours in the back of this pickup truck. And I really have immense amount of respect and love for these people because I would not be sitting here having this conversation if it weren't for the kindness of strangers. Yeah. And I think about that every single day of my life. Mm-hmm. That's made a huge impact on my life of this idea of the spirit of giving back and how can we do that? How can you do that? How can I do that? How can any of us do that? Because when I was laying there on that shed, this woman from the German embassy had been driving behind us and she stopped. And when she walked in and that boy was sewing up my arm, I was like, oh my God, thank God somebody speaks English. I said, I need oxygen. I need oxygen. And she just turned to me and she just said, you're just scared. And she didn't reach out. I can't even imagine seeing somebody suffering like that. She didn't touch me. She didn't help me in any way. And she left. She just left me there to die because she didn't want blood in her car. Wow. That's what they told me. So it's it's just so interesting how... It can go either way. I mean, I could have been left there to die. And somebody else came along and chose to not let that happen. In fact, Alan got on the car radio and he called the American Embassy and he said, you have to open the Lao Friendship Bridge because it's the only way for us to get into Thailand because now it was like the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. And they refused. They said, no, there's too much guerrilla warfare. There's people fighting. It's very dangerous. And he said, no, you've got to. It's going to be on your shoulders. You're going to have a dead American on your hands. She's got a broken back, collapsed lungs. You know, it was at his insistence, and they did. They came out, and I was never so glad to hear an American accent in my entire life. And they got me to Thailand, and they couldn't even get me to Bangkok. It was just one little border hospital. One doctor, Dr. Bunsam, was the only doctor there. You know, whereas here you'd have heart specialists, lung specialists, you know, whatever. And this guy, you know, was one guy, and he just said, I can't get a breathing tube down your throat. I don't understand what's going on. He did an x-ray. He showed me. said, oh, my God, I've never seen this before. Your heart is being literally ripped out. He said, I don't understand how you just survived for 17 hours. Right then I flatlined, and this guy brought me back. And this guy literally held my heart in his hands. So I feel very indebted to this man as well. I was three weeks in intensive care there. They didn't think I was going to make it. And they called my brother and he came over and he slept at the foot of my bed. And it was really touch and go for a long time there. They did a lot of surgeries while I was there. The same doctor doing every surgery on my arm, on my lungs, on my heart. It was a pretty intense time. I'm the poster trial for medevac insurance because I did not have medevac insurance. It had just run out like the day before. And so it was $25,000 for me to get back. We maxed out five credit cards. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people if you travel, you've got to have medevac insurance because you just never know when you need it, you Mm -hmm. know, and I wanted to get home. So I did, I got back and it was a really grim prognosis. I was told that I would probably never walk again properly, at least I would never, certainly never work as a photojournalist again. And I had more than 30 surgeries and I stared at a ceiling on a morphine drip for six months, you know, and here I'd been to Everest base camp twice on the Nepal and Tibet side. I'm an avid kayaker, hiker, skier, yoga, you know, I mean, I was like very, very active. So there just came a point where I 
just had to get off all the medication. I felt like I had to get my mind back and just get strong again and start believing in myself. And mm. I remember hobbling into my physical therapist. So I got rid of all the doctors that were really negative. There was, you know, mm. this doctor came in and said, you, you know, you better think about what you want to do with your life now. You know, when he told me I wasn't going to walk, I said, well, I plan on climbing Mount Kilimanjaro for my birthday next year. <laughs> so he sent me to psychiatrist, yeah. you know, and say, oh, you're in denial. And so I got rid of everybody that was negative. You have to believe in yourself mm -hmm. and went to this physical therapist and hobbled in on these crutches. And I said, tell me what I can do. I said, I think I can get back to kayaking. I might not be able to walk, but I think I can kayak. And she's like, well, you're not there yet, you know, yes. but... So I had to work with patience, which is not my strong point. And I had to work with being totally reliant on other people. I couldn't even feed myself. I had a great tribe of friends in San Francisco, you know, that were really there for me. And that meant a lot. I didn't know that I was loved that much. It's like coming back from mm. my own funeral in a way, you know, yeah. that meant a lot. I had mounting medical bills that the community really pulled together and helped support. And I was a freelancer, you know, I wasn't prepared for anything like this and not being able to work for so long. And, but anyway, I got back and that was huge. I got back to being able to finally kayak Glacier Bay in Alaska, you know, that was like huge. And, and then it took me two years, but I did it. I got to the top of Kilimanjaro huh. and that was immense for me because I felt like I'd come back physically Spiritually and emotionally, I had a long way to go. I had a lot of post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And so it became clear for me, you know, what I needed to do. Because really, as any good mountain climber knows, the real survival is in the descent. What do you do when you come off the mountain? Mm -hmm. So after three years, I felt like I needed to go back to that village and wow. get back on the bus. And that was what I needed to do to overcome that. So I got back on the bus I went to Thailand, and first I went back to see Dr. Bunsam and thank him for saving my life. And it was funny. He, at first, he didn't recognize me. He couldn't believe I was walking because yeah. they had taken me out in a medevac. And he, first thing he says, you're so short. He said, I had no idea you were so small because he'd <laughs> only seen me lying down in a bed. It was a very tearful reunion, very moving to thank somebody for saving your life. It's somebody that literally had held my heart in his hands. And then I went to the village, and... These people couldn't understand why I was looking so emotionally at their cow field. And, yeah. you know, and then I had pictures on my arms with hundreds of stitches in it. And then they, they realized who I was and they all came out. They all started weeping. The women couldn't believe that I was alive and walking. And so I was very touched by their response. And I said, I'm going to do something and come back and help you. And that became for me a focal point. And it's really why I started my foundations so because I couldn't shoot for a long period of time, but I wrote this, it started as a series of articles for Outside Magazine mm -hmm. about the accident. And then it became this book, Learning to Breathe, because the articles I was writing, they were sort of this high testosterone, like I survived this, where for me, there was a much deeper part of the story and there was a more spiritual side mm -hmm. of the story. And there was just a lot of people involved that... I felt, you know, there was a, just a bigger story to it. So this is why I wrote this book. And when I wrote the book, it became clear that I needed to do more than just making pictures, that I wanted to give back in a bigger way. So I started this foundation called the Basis of Hope Fund. Mm -hmm. And the premise, it's a rather broad brushstroke, but to help children in crisis around the world. Because initially the first thing that I wanted to do that I did do was go back to that village in Laos. And I brought five American doctors and $10,000 worth of medical supplies with doctor to doctor. 
-hmm. And it was really, really awesome to be able to give back to them in some way. And the whole village came out to celebrate. And I personally handed sutures to the kid who I found out was not a doctor, even a nurse, but this guy that sewed up my arm. And oh, I said, wow. here, use these next time. <laughs> yeah. Use proper sutures and not yeah. staples and needle and thread. And very huh. sweet guys in my book. And, you know, and then with this foundation, I just feel like I've been able to go and and give back a little bit more because a little can do so much in mm-hmm. these countries. And, you know, there's people on the ground that are doing really wonderful things that you know, I've been able to help donate tents when I covered Haiti and send girls to school in India, a place that I work in a lot. And when I was in the Middle East to help a rehab center, children that have been devastated by accidents there, which is the number one cause of injury to children in and they're the only rehab center in the whole Middle East. And most recently, I was in Thailand. I've done a lot of work with Tibetan refugees and found this pocket of Tibetan refugees in Phuket and helping to get a mobile medical unit there. And so I feel like my job is I'm just a conduit. I just show what's going on in these places, but I'm tired of just showing the problems. I want to show the solutions as well. And that's really my goal now is to create hope, to inspire other people. How can you give back in some way, however small, because I feel like what I do is incredibly small. It feels like a drop in the bucket, but if we all just do a drop in the bucket, then it's Mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. And I believe that people are really intrinsically good. As I go around the world, I'm always trying to find compassion in this world of chaos. And I've seen a lot of chaos. You know, I've done a lot of work since covering the tsunami in Sri Lanka and Haiti, the earthquake in Haiti and Katrina, being in New Orleans for that, and covering poverty in America. I was hired by the Children's Defense Fund to do that for a year. And just seeing the devastation on our own country was incredibly humbling. Mm -hmm. So really challenging situations for people. But I just really feel that that we can band together and help. And that's my goal to really tell stories that show that in in a, a positive way. How are you able to remain so positive and uplifted after seeing all of the chaos and the hurt and poverty around the world, how are you able to put it in its rightful place so that you can then help? Because I think it's the only thing that'll motivate people. Mm -hmm. You know, the days of showing these kids with outstretched hands with flies on their eyes. I mean, that's just a page turner. Yeah. Who wants to see that? It's too devastating. But if you show that there's something positive that you can do, I really believe in the good in people. I believe that people want to help. Mm -hmm. And if you show like, hey, this person is doing this, Maybe not everybody can get to these places. That's my job. I gave a talk at the Telluride Film Festival. I just covered tsunami in Sri Lanka, and I was speaking about this. And this film director came up, and he bought every print of mine off the wall, which was incredibly generous of him. And then he cut me a check for $10,000 and said, here, I want you to go help people. And that was the seed money to start doing this because, you know, as a documentary photographer, I've never had the money to do that. Every cent that I ever get through this foundation goes to helping, you yeah. know, and it's what I see. It is it is sort of my choice or my decision because I do. I see it on the ground. But as he said, you're the one out there seeing it. You know it needs to be helped. Mm-hmm. I'm just here in L.A. doing my work. And yeah. that's what it is. If it's financial, then that's that's huge. 
you just see these big organizations that are being fed and so much of it goes to administrative costs and Mm -hmm. it doesn't, and I've seen that I've worked with these organizations and that's incredibly frustrating. But when you see people that are really on the ground doing such grassroots work, Mm -hmm. I'm just such a huge believer in that. And that's what I try to feed. And that's what I try to encourage. So little can do so much in these countries. So I, I believe in sort of, you know, supporting that and writing about that and, and showing visually what people are doing to encourage other people to think about, you know, what can I do? We're becoming such global travelers now. You yeah. know, we need to sort of look at how can we step lightly. But when you look at the Tibetan nomad, that they've spent their whole life living in a yak hair tent, and yeah. that's all they know. They're not even agriculturalists. They're dependent on their yak. Mm-hmm. And... Suddenly, they're being forced out and living in concrete houses in some city. I mean, it's just like the demise of the American Indian. Mm-hmm. I feel like Edward Curtis sometimes when I'm working in Tibet. I've been going there for 25 years, and I go really remote, as mm-hmm. remote as I possibly can, and it's just changing everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, in my own short little lifetime, they're not able to work in these cities. They don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the skills. And then when they're thrust into exile... I mean, they didn't even know how to plant seeds. When they were given seeds, they didn't know what to do with that. You know, they were just throwing the seeds on the ground. And then if something grew, they were actually eating the weeds and throwing away the corn. I mean, you know, down in South India, you know, they didn't know how to do that. They needed the Swiss to come in and really teach them. And, And they're actually one of the most successful refugee stories out there. They're, you know, now very successful in South India, growing and and self-supporting themselves. But they needed help. I think that's the key, too, is helping people help themselves. And this whole age is throwing money at people is not the answer. But to help support organizations that are on the ground and understanding how things work, Mm -hmm. seeing what they can do. I have a great friend, Olga Murray in Nepal, that's almost single-handedly stamped out girls being sold into bonded labor in Western Nepal by starting a program that gives piglets to families. They actually have markets where they were selling the girls. I went out and did a story on this, and it's heartbreaking. But by giving piglets to the families, they were able to sell a piglet at the end of the year instead of their girl child, which is a sad statement about what a girl child is worth. But there you have it. But these girls, it's an incredible success story. They've managed to not be traded. So these are the things I like to support in my own little way. Because I don't like to go and just give money to individuals. You know, I go into a village and I say to the head man of the Maasai tribe or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, here's some money for the school or here's some books or here's something that you need. And that's how I like to support and give back because it's just wrong to be handing out dollar bills to people and to create that whole beggar mentality because we've really ruined a lot of countries that way. And especially with children, this whole idea of just giving out money to kids, I think is really creating a beggar mentality that's just, it's not dignified and it's not helping them. So if people want to find out more about your foundation? Go to facesofhope.org. Okay. Facesofhope.org. There's different stories about different places that I've gone in and I've helped. 
And like I said, every cent really does go to these different projects, and I just see them along the way, and it really does help to bring something into the culture rather than just going in there and making photos and saying, oh, well, I hope these photos will help you someday, because of course you do. But if you can go in and actually help support them, and people are out there doing really incredible things. I mean, for me, that keeps me going. Mm -hmm. I find that incredibly hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. So have you done the what ifs, what if I hadn't missed that first bus I was going oh. to take and what what does it mean that I was on this one and I, yeah. do you see I guess what I'm asking you do you see it as a positive now it's a huge gift yeah it's a huge gift you know I've dipped more than a toe into feeling my own mortality mm-hmm. it's a huge touchstone for me it's an incredible gift to feel that this is all a giant PS, you know? I mean, I literally shouldn't be here. Every specialist that I've gone to since, you know, lung specialist, heart specialist, this is something that's an ongoing thing for me. Says, I can't believe how lucky you are. Like this lung specialist I had, he said he was a surgeon in Vietnam for 12 years and he's never seen anybody survive the extent of the injuries I had. Wow. And he said, you know, you really need to think about that every day for the rest of your life. That was a bit heavy to bear at first because I felt like, wow, I shouldn't even be washing my car or enjoying the small things in life. I should be out saving the world. Mm -hmm. And yet it has made me really appreciate the small things in life. I have such an incredible appreciation for that because I know what it's like to lay there Mm -hmm. thinking that each breath will be my last and that I will never have this moment again. And yet there is this feeling of wanting to make each moment count. Mm -hmm. I've really managed to pack a pretty full suitcase in this life. I feel like I've managed to really do a lot. And, you know, there's so much more I want to do. I want to do really useful work. Sometimes I do get frustrated. I feel like it's not enough, that it does feel small and menial. And yet, if there's any small way that I can inspire other people, which was another reason to write the book, because I think that everybody has their own trauma. I mean, you don't have to get hit by a logging truck, God forbid, you know? I mean, that everybody's working through, trying to get through something. I think that we really have this inner strength. We just need to tap into that. Mm -hmm. And if I had listened to those doctors initially, I would probably still be in a wheelchair and not walking because if you hear that over and over and you tend to believe what other people tell you. So I've met a lot of people that have really dealt with some really extensive injuries and challenges in their life. I just tell them, don't, you know, Mm -hmm. listen to yourself because the mind is a really incredible thing. It was interesting because I was reading Gabrielle Gifford's Mm -hmm. book for inspiration because she had been shot in the head. Her husband wrote that the mother was reading books to her, and one of the most inspirational books they read was Learning to Breathe by Alison Wright. And I read that, and I'm like, what? And I just, I was so touched because I thought, wow, I'm reading her book for inspiration. Well, she had read my book for inspiration, and I was very touched by that. That's what made me go back to reread my book (laughs) because I'm like, oh, that's inspiring. Okay. Yeah. You sort of move on, and... Not that, of course, I'll ever forget that it happened, but to remind myself that, you know what, you got through all these challenges before and just get through this. And so it's been work, but I am, I'm getting better. Again, the plasticity of the mind is so fascinating because, you know, I had to just retrain myself how to see again and how to navigate moving through the world and especially carrying equipment. You know, that's what was kept throwing me off. You know, I'm back out shooting, which is huge. And that's always seems to be the carrot at the end of the stick. I was just so happy to be get out shooting again. And now I'm doing it. And, 
loving it. And you are going to go for a run after uh, this is over. So, I mean, it's just incredible, really, if you, if you think about it. So I'd love to read a, a little quote from Richard Gere, who's a buddy of yours. Alison Wright is a wonder. I've known her for years as an extraordinary photographer and a serious meditator. And I thought I knew her story well. I knew nothing. I didn't know what a profound writer she is. It is a life of exploration, devotion, and transformation by fire. There are muscle and tears here and the fierce flame of inspiration. She's the real deal. Good job. Thanks. Good job, lady. Thanks. <laughs> so Sweet. it feels a bit frivolous to then jump into the Traveler's 10 questions, but we need to. <laughs> it's just uh, to follow up such an amazing story like that with these. But... I'm just going to tell see. you one story about the Dalai Lama. Please do. Did you find his giggle adorable? Did he giggle a lot or was he serious? Oh, yeah. You? No, no. He because always, I saw he him does. once and it was... Yeah. A lot of people just, yeah. respond to that. Yeah. More interestingly, it was is seeing him cry. You know, hmm. when you see him cry. That's really interesting because he's trying to draw compassion. Because when you, you see him cry, you do. You feel this immense yeah. compassion and... I don't know. He has an array of emotions, but I went to see him years, many, many years, many times I've gone to see him, but there was this time that he saw me and he took my hand and he said, oh, you again. And, you know, we were walking from his home and he by now, of course, had won the Nobel Peace Prize and is ubiquitous all over the world. And I said to him, you know, I'm really sorry to be taking your time like this. I just really want you to know that I have the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me piercingly, like no one's ever looked at me like this. And he said, I know, and good intent, most important in all that you do, always remember. Those words have always stayed with me because I think as human beings, we tend to be hard on ourselves. I know that I am, mm-hmm. that I don't always do the right thing. Yeah. But I always come back to that. Good intent, most important in all that you do, always remember. Because I think, what are my intentions? Yeah. That's an important thing to look at. I might not always do the right thing, but I think, what is my intent? And it's made me much more compassionate with others and with myself and treasure that. Also, when I'm making pictures, I think it's really important when I'm making photographs that I think, what is my intent here? Yeah. Because I can't always talk to the people that I'm photographing. I photograph all over the world, and I love that, trying to connect with people beyond words, Mm -hmm. because it's a pure heartfelt connection. That's Mm -hmm. how I gain their trust. I don't get to speak with them as much as I'd like, or if I'm doing it through a translator, it's not the same. Mm -hmm. But they really, I believe, get my intent. And that's why I feel like I'm also very good in these humanitarian situations, because it's not always easy to put my camera in front of somebody that's suffering. Right. And yet... It's important to do that. It's important to tell the story. It's important to help them. It's how they're going to get help. And it's also important to make people feel special and proud of who they are because often people are embarrassed. Oh, God, why do you want pictures of me? I'm in these horrible, ratty clothes in my yurt in Mongolia. But you know what? Everybody wants to be made to feel special. And if you're really giving that time and that focus to somebody They really appreciate it when they know that it's not just to be taken advantage of. And that's why I love my book, this new book, Face to Face, Portraits of the Human Spirit. I'm looking at them and they're looking back at you, the viewer. 
And I want you to feel that universal human connection because we are so different looking all over the world. And I purposely didn't just choose really exotic looking people, but I wanted you to see the human being in there. And if I can bring that connection back, then I've done my job. But really just the theme being that we're so similar all over the world, wherever we are. It's like we really want the same thing for our families and ourselves. (laughs) You know, we want our kids to be safe. We want to have a job that's going to put enough money in our pocket to get by. Mm -hmm. We want to feel useful on the planet. And we just make things so complicated. It's really not that complicated. That's right. (laughs) And when you go back to these pastoral societies, it's so simple. But what a gifted life I've been given that I can meet all these people and I can bring them back for others to meet through whatever way I can do that. That for me Mm. just feels really, really important because it helps us understand each other globally on a much simpler level and if you can understand somebody that i've met without having to go there you know then i feel like i've just really done my job absolutely well my dad who's the one that got me into photography when Mm -hmm. i was a kid and we had a dark room and then i minored in it i was an english major and photo minor at penn he would be really upset if i didn't tell you his little (laughs) poem to teach me photography when i was a kid if the pictures blah and brown don't frown, get down. <laughs> so now I've done my job to tell you. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Yeah. All right. So Travelers 10, what travel book makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane? That's a tough one because I read so many travel books. All the books I read tend to be nonfiction, a lot of the biographies, most of them, and a lot of travel books. But I, I can remember in high school getting this Henri Cartier-Bresson book mm. and cutting out the photo of these women that were standing on a, a top of a mountain in burkas with their arms outstretched towards the sun. Mm. And I had that picture cut out and on my notebook throughout high school because I just felt so inspired to want to go to India and to mm. meet people like this. And what were they reaching towards Hmm. you know I just found that such an inspirational photograph so it was photographers that really inspired me that wanted to travel I was really inspired by Eugene Smith and Mm -hmm. Henri Cartier-Bresson as I mentioned and Sebastian Salgado the depth of his work working with people and children that's what really inspired me to travel it wasn't just necessarily travel like about me, but travel about other people. How could I best do something that would have that kind of impact? And then also Lewis Hine, although he worked in the United States, mostly, you know, with child labor and Dorothea Lange, of course. You know, so it was documentary photographers that made me want to get on a document. But, you know, there's, oh my gosh, there's so many great travel writers that just with the word, I mean, Pico Wire. You know, you just have to hear him speak and you just want to you know, pack your bags and get on a plane. And he's so lyrical and I feel really honored to call him a friend. He wrote the foreword for my book, Face to Face. Yeah, he wrote a really lovely foreword and I have photographed his book cover for the Dalai Lama. And so I feel like we've influenced and supported each other in ways. But he writes such beautiful lyrical emails that I love to just tell him somewhere where I am so that he can respond in his gorgeous lyrical way. And yeah. Yeah, when he speaks as well. Beautiful, beautiful language. Gosh, I have a whole bookcase over there of people (laughs) that have inspired me wanting to travel. Oh, it's endless. 
What destination do you consider a best-kept secret? I don't know that anywhere's secret anymore. Everywhere is being explored. But I also don't know when people ask me, where should I travel? You know, everybody has just mm-hmm. such a different agenda. Yeah. You know, some people want to go to beaches and they're looking right. for the best beach and other people hate beaches. And for me, I have such a different agenda because I'm so culturally oriented. I'm always about where can mm-hmm. I find the most interesting people and the most visually enticing and You know, I have to admit I'm a bit of a romantic pastoralist. You know, I really do love people that live close to the land. I like photographing those people that I feel are so on the edge of change. And Mm. it makes me sad in a way to see an extinction. I've trekked all over Nepal and not that I would ever want to deny some of those people that live in the hills, you know, that are wanting Mm -hmm. a fleece jacket because they see so many trekkers come through wearing North Mm -hmm. Face. But Again, it's not of their own evolution. It's because all these trekkers are coming through with iPads and cameras and iPods and phones and devices. And, you know, I've been going there for so many years. Like, I can remember when people had nothing that they would put packets of food outside just because they were proud to show that they actually had garbage rather than just rice and lentils. And It makes me sad, this creation of need and materialism that is tainting a lot of cultures because it certainly hasn't made us happy, more stuff. When I hate that I'm a slave to it, I'm a slave of needing the latest computers and Mm -hmm. hard drives. It's become my medium now. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not what I signed up for. It's sad. I can remember just running around the world with just a camera and some film and life was just so much simpler. I liked when it was simple. So that gets a little off that tangent. That brings up a good point. I, I miss the darkroom. I mm. liked working with... Right. It just yeah. felt more tactile. And now it's yeah. become a craft. You know, that's just a craft. Yeah, it's not... interesting. <laughs> but, you know, I, I love Tibet. I don't know that it's the best-kept secret, but I, it's a place that I go back to nearly every year. I call myself a documentary photographer because I do. I go back to a lot of places, and I'm continuously documenting change and evolution. And, you know, I've got 16 huge filing cabinets here of slides, crample of slides, and, you know, they really cover places that sadly are not going to exist any longer. When I photographed the shamans in the rainforest, this guy was no longer wearing his whiskers in his nose because the missionaries told him it was bad and it's bad for them to wear penis gourds and they should be wearing, they were wearing polyester gym shorts and this guy was wearing a ruffled tuxedo shirt shimming up a tree. Who's telling these people that? Who's going in and dictating that they shouldn't be how they are? So I find that incredibly irresponsible when we inflict our ideas on culture. And it's the same when I was working with child labor. Of course, we go in there and we get outraged that kids are working. And yet what I presented to the UN is that these people have seven children per family on average in Mm -hmm. Nepal, that it's not necessarily that we can be dictating that these kids can't work because it's their livelihood. It's how these families live. But can we make the conditions better? Mm -hmm. And that was my whole goal, is making these workplaces a more palatable place to live and work, like the carpet factories. It's not up to us to tell other people how to live. Right. You know, it's just if we can make people's lives a little bit better. Mm. So I, I love Tibet, though. I really need to get there. Haven't yet. <laughs> I was on the border. What site should be seen at least once in a lifetime and why? I know this is kind of a cliche. I mean, one that pops to mind 
I think the Taj Mahal. I think that everybody mm. needs to see the Taj Mahal at least once in their life yeah. because there's just these little pockets of these fabulous places that just take your breath away that are such a testament to what we can build visually and beautifully as a man. And mm -hmm. I just came from Turkey and, you know, I love Istanbul. It's the yeah. same when I see those beautiful mosques. mosques. And mm -hmm. so those kind of structures I feel are very touching, but I feel like everybody should see Antarctica in their lifetime because that blew my mind. I don't know. I was admittedly lukewarm about going to Antarctica. I was sent there and I thought a bunch of snow and ice and penguins and it really is going to be that interesting because I'm such a people person. Yeah. And I got there and it just blew my mind. I mean, there's really nothing like seeing an iceberg go by that's the size of Belgium and penguins. And again, it just gives you such a feeling of wonderment about this planet that we live on. And that's such a natural beauty and it's so untouched. And yet you really do get the feeling of how the planet's being affected because you are seeing an iceberg the size of Belgium going by. What and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling? <laughs> right off the top of my head, I was just on this cruise going around on the Mediterranean. It was, you know, the situation in Bari, Italy, where you could take a tour. And because we met friends there, we, you know, looked around a little and then we just decided to go to a local restaurant. I was fixated that I wanted to get pizza in Italy. And it was so great. This meal was so fabulous because it's sort of like you have this idea that you want a meal and yet it rarely ever holds up to your expectations. Yeah. And this friend wasn't even from Bari. She was from another area of Italy. So we asked, you know, I asked somebody in a bar, like, where he recommended. And so we went to this place. It used to be, I think it was a monastery where monks lived, and now it was a restaurant. It was the most amazing pizza I have ever had in my life. Huh. It was so fun because it was run by a couple guys, and they were making pizza in the wood oven with real uh -huh. wood. And the pizza was amazing. It was the most amazing pasta with fresh clam sauce ever that was just pure virgin olive oil i mean so simple mm -hmm. and we just had all these visuals of what we wanted and it all came to life and it was all like exceeded our expectations yeah. and, and then i had hazelnut gelato which i just love huh. and, and and so that's my most immediate most memorable meal but definitely my most memorable meal was being in the arctic and I was going to all these different islands, photographing hunters and going out hunting with them. And, and they invited me to go on this picnic. And it was absolutely freezing cold. Yeah. And so I thought, God, what kind of picnic is this going to be? And so we went out to the water's edge. And they literally killed two seals. And they dragged <laughs> them up raw, slit them open. And this was their idea of a picnic. Wow. And they also had this frozen caribou there. So, I mean, it's really a challenge when you're in a culture like that because, you know, you're being really honored. So they gave me the eyebrows that they had carved off the caribou. And I, <laughs> like, they look like these two little fuzzy caterpillars. Uh -huh. And so I surreptitiously just tucked them in my Gore-Tex jacket. Yeah. in the pockets. And then they cut the seal open and it was steaming and it was all the intestines and they were eating the intestines raw. So they were offering me that. And then they had the delicacy is the seal eyeballs. 
Wow. There was no way I was going to be able to eat those. Yeah. But you know what? I put all this like in my pocket because yeah. I didn't want to say no. It would be right. very offensive. But the funny thing was is that all the dogs then started following me. Oh, no. So I had to make a getaway. And I'm very uncomfortable around dogs anyway. But these dogs are following me. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, trying to run away. <laughs> throwing meat at them so they'll like leave you alone it was very comical but that definitely is the most memorable it's meal memorable. ever yeah. yeah i'll never forget that one and i much preferred the meal in bari italy yeah so, yeah so. what was your most nerve-wracking experience on the road and how could other travelers avoid it hmm, i wonder what that could be yeah i would definitely say lying eviscerated dying by the side of the road in laos <laughs> I don't know how you can't avoid really it. be avoided, you know, yeah. just when it happens, it happens. And yeah. And then you know. stay strong and breathe. Yeah. Just breathe. Just breathe. I got that. That was my 10 year anniversary of surviving the oh, accident. Wow. This tattoo that it's an old Tibetan script it yeah, reads I this recognize. way. I was starting to try to learn yeah. when I was at the monastery, huh. but I got this llama to write it out for me in Tibet, but oh, it says, wow. breathe in, breathe out. It's the breath within the breath. So breathe in. Breathe out. And I use that to always remind myself because I think we forget to breathe a lot. Absolutely. What passport stamp still eludes you? North Korea. I'm interested to go to North Korea. Yeah. Gosh, there's so many. I mean, the more places you travel, the more you realize that you haven't been to. I mean, I'd like to explore West Africa. I haven't been to Iceland yet. I'd like to go to Iceland. Hmm. I really love West Africa. I'd like to get to Mali, but it's not right now. Yeah. But Sierra Leone was nice. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, I've you know I've gone around Africa quite a bit, mm-hmm. but it's such a rich country, yeah. and yet it's very difficult yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, really rewarding, really rewarding when you can do it. What is your most cherished souvenir, and why? Definitely my most cherished souvenir. I mean, these are the things that do mean the most to me. Like if there was ever a fire, you yeah. know, I love the things that people have given me. But when I went out to Kenya and Tanzania and I was just driving around, so I was by myself for the entire time, and I always heard about how the Maasai, you know, they always want money from you, you're going to have to pay for every photo. I was kind of bracing myself for this very negative experience, and I got out there, and I pitched my tent, it was dark, and I woke up in the morning and thought, oh God, I have no idea how these people are going to react to some white woman camped out on their terrain, and I opened my tent, and there's a huge line of them all waiting to meet me. And here's the head man, and he's holding this little ball of fur. And I'm like, what is that? And it turns out to be, it was a fur ball that the lion had coughed up. Because you know how cats get these little hair balls? Well, lions have big (sighs) ones that are the size of softballs. And he presented this to me, and I'm like, I love this. I don't know, I was very touched. And his wife was standing behind him with a little warthog tusk. And so that has great meaning to me. But really, the things that mean the most, too, are I just feel like it's the people that have the least that give the most, Mm -hmm. you know, that we tend to hang on to things so much in this culture. When I covered the tsunami in Sri Lanka, I was really touched how many people were just staked out living in this rubble because they had nowhere else to go. There was no infrastructure. They didn't know what else to do. And this man was sitting in the middle of this rubble, and he beckoned me over, and he was sitting in what had been his kitchen. So he shimmied up a tree, picked a coconut for me, and presented me this coconut to sit down in this one chair that was left in the rubble in his kitchen. He said, this used to be my kitchen. All I can offer you is a coconut. Gave me that. 
And then his wife said, and all I have are these. And they were these beautiful green little shells. She said, this is all the ocean left us. Oh, wow. And I still have those. Those shells have huge meaning to me. And I don't know, I'm very touched by that. When I covered Haiti, I had been staying in this beautiful $10,000 night resort in Turks and Caicos. And it just shows the dichotomy of my work. You know, I had a butler, you know, I had just had a massage. I remember coming out, getting this call. How soon can you get to Haiti? There's been an earthquake. I was like, right away. But, you know, I'm at a resort, you know, I don't have any of the appropriate clothing or anything. So I had to go to the pool and ask people for a flashlight. Does anybody have socks? People were amazing. They were just donating, and then I just raided the mini bar, and I grabbed some food and some water, and I went literally with one change of shirt and one camera bag because this guy said I can charter a plane and you can get there in 35 minutes, but if you have to go back to New York, it'll take a couple of days. And I said, no, no, I'm ready to go. So I jump on this plane and get to Haiti, and I didn't know anything about Haiti, and this priest drove me eight hours to get to Port-au-Prince because you couldn't even land near there. I didn't, I honestly, I wasn't even sure if they spoke French or Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I got there and it was like Dante's Inferno. There were fires and people were screaming and crying. And he just left me with these people that he knew that huh. they had lost everything. The whole family was staying at the sister's. And they let me sleep outside in their backyard. So mm-hmm. I was there for three weeks sleeping outside. They never asked when I was leaving and were so amazing. Like every morning, the grandmother had a little cup of thick Haitian coffee for me to drink. And every day I came home, she knew I was out there photographing this horrible stuff. She always made sure I had a little bowl of hot water to wash with. I was so touched by that. I finally got this UN evacuation flight out to leave. And I opened this little backpack I had with my cameras in it, and it were two pounds of Haitian coffee. (laughs) I get so tired. Like, every time I think about that, I mean, I drank one, but the other one I still have in the refrigerator because it's the first thing I look at every morning as a reminder that it is the people that have the least that give the most. I mean, what a beautiful gift. Yeah. You know? Here's my little hairball. I think it's in the other room. I'll show you my hairball. I love that hairball. I love it. It's in the other room so no one like messes with my hairball. Right. My nieces love it. They come over and you know there's all this weird stuff but they've started the Aunt Allie Museum because I'm always bringing them strange things from all over the world. What's the most interesting custom or tradition you discovered abroad and did you bring it back home? Hmm. Well, usually I do a no shoes thing. I think Mm. that's kind of a good thing. But I personally really, I don't practice it here, but I really love the namaste. And I just don't like handshaking here. But I love the idea of the namaste and I salute the God within you is what that means. Mm -hmm. And it's so reverent and it's just such a nice greeting. And they do it all throughout Asia, Nepal and Thailand and I wish that we would pick that custom up here. I just think that's a very reverent, lovely way to meet somebody. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah I, I like that. What's your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers? Have medevac insurance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world? That we really are the same the world over. You know, it's, it's as I said before, I just think that we do tend to look so different, so we tend to feel separate, and yet 
we're so much the same and if you just bring that idea with you when you travel when you go somewhere that these people are not that different to just have respect in these cultures because they are just trying to get by they want health and safety for their children and a little bit of money in their pocket and feeling useful and everybody's just trying to figure that out how they can make that work we're just feeling compassion for other people made me cry for this interview. <laughs> it was so lovely. Oh. I really appreciate it. Wow. Allison just leaves me wordless, truly. Please pick up a copy of her travel memoir, Learning to Breathe, One Woman's Journey of Spirit and Survival on Amazon.com. And also try to chip in however much you can towards her Faces of Hope Fund to help support her friends in need around the world. You can also follow Allison's adventures on her website, allisonwright.com, or on Twitter at awrightphoto. And I want to thank Allison again for sharing her lovely, inspiring, and uplifting story with us today. It was an absolute honor. And until next time, get out there and set the world on fire.